We want freedom by any means necessary. We, we want justice by any means necessary. We want equality by any means necessary. We want it now or we don't think anybody should have it. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast that comes to you by any means necessary, even at 10 p.m. after an argument with my boyfriend. And we're going to get into that in this first (laughs) movement. We're going to get into what we were arguing about. But first and foremost, let me shout out and do the business that I need to take care of. This opus of Triloquy is brought to you in part by the Gateways Music Festival. The virtual Gateways Music Festival took place last week, but you can still check out what the Gateways Music Festival is, what it's about, and how you can contribute to the cause for black people, black classical musicians from across the African diaspora globally. You can get more information on that at gatewaysmusicfestival.org. I would also like to shout out the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Scott, I gave a, I, you know, booked and busy. I gave a pretty good um, uh, talk uh, to some of their students on a um, on a series on music and social justice. So a huge shout out to Remy Tagavi, who had me um, uh, at the University of uh, Massachusetts uh, at Amherst. And shout out to all of the students. I really appreciate all the questions and all of the uh, really engaging conversation that we were able to have. Um, And I also want to shout out the Minneapolis Public Library for having me for their vinyl revival. So this is coming out on Wednesday. So tomorrow on Thursday. Um, I uh, I went into the library, put on my mask, went deep into the archives, <laughs> deep into the library, way back where they have classical vinyl. And I put together a concert about using classical music, so-called classical music, of course, um, as a means of understanding the world and engaging the world. I think uh, when I put when I went to the library that day, um, it was actually election day. I, I went on that Tuesday uh, into the library and uh, on the radio or whatever I was listening to, I heard a whole bunch of Escape the Noise. And you know how I feel about that. I do. Using classical music as an escape. So that, that's probably the energy that I was coming from. So that's going to be a great um, uh, program. I'll have information on that um, in the description um, of this opus. Um, and Scott, before we uh, got into the first movement, I also wanted to um, once again shout out um, David Cades Burnett from last week. You know, I listened back. I don't listen back to all of the opuses now. I decided to listen back to this one. And um, when David was talking about taking the photos, my mind instantly went to um, when Dell and I went to your house to record one Monday and uh, you had some photos out on the table and looking at those pictures. Shout out Scott working. Yeah. And seeing those pictures of younger you and, you know, the stories and what I can even imagine as the stories behind those. You know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Everyone has said that mm-hmm. a thousand times. But listening back to um, to David say some of the things he said, wow. And let's talk about, and I hate to get on the soapbox here just in the introduction, but let's think about 
some of these historical figures that we uh, raise up and laud up all the time in the work we do. Let's let's go with the number one that everyone knows, Florence Price. Mm-hmm. What if we had more than just those two or three photos of her? What if we had Claire more? Schumann's the same way? There's like three photos of her, right? Or or even the folks even before photography. I'm sorry, you know? not Schumann. Uh, Amy Beach. Oh, very, Amy Beach. Yeah, very few photos. See, of I don't her. know if I've seen a photo of her. Actually. Well, well, there's it's it looks like it was the same setting, and there's one where she's looking straight at you. Yeah, and then there's this one. <laughs> so we right got, to the side. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I I just felt like I needed to name that. Like we 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 sometimes we take things for granted and and I'm not, you know, this isn't my way of saying that something is going bad in my life of the things that we take for granted, but lis- listening back to that opus and listening to David talk about the photos and just remembering the moments that I remember from him taking photos even back in the iPad days. So I, I just wanted to give him another special shout out and you know, go back and look at some of your old photos. It's something what you if I went back into my phone and went into the oldest, you know, just scrolled all the way down through the thousands and started at the beginning. I I, I had some yeah. memories. I, went, I took I took a trip down memory lane this week. So shout out to David. You know. Yeah. So I appreciate the uh, little care package that my buddy Scott Working sent to me. Uh, it was just the kick in the ass that I needed to call him. The photos and, were in the care package. Right. Okay. Yeah. There was a bunch of theater stuff and uh, all the old uh, shelter belt days. And it it got me to pick up the phone. So, hey, mission accomplished on that front, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, thank you to the returning listeners. I really appreciate you. If you are a new listener, we start this thing different every time. Um, <laughs> and this is the way it is for Opus 75. Uh, the guest this week, I should mention, is uh, Tyshawn Sori. We're going to talk about one of the projects he has coming up. Uh, huge thanks to him for uh, taking the time to speak with me earlier today, actually. Um, so, yeah, I guess that'll do it for the announcements. Let's get into the first movement. So first and foremost, as I mentioned, we're starting a little late because... Dell and I had had a little bit of a of a discussion, and it was a, a and, spirited debate. And you know, Dell, we don't argue about anything that har that is uh, how can I say impactful to our relationship. It's never personal things. We're we're never going to bed upset. We were arguing today about the the damn coronavirus vaccine. So, mm-hmm. and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But are you going to get it day one? Like when the coronavirus vaccine comes out, are you ready? No. No. Why? Why are you not ready? Because we don't know what the side effects are going to be. We don't know what uh, <laughs> what Cronenberg <laughs> sort of character is going to turn us into. Thank no, you. No, I'm being hyperbolic there. No, but I'm saying well, I, we don't know. But you see, the thing is, is that I've been fine so far in our bubble. You know, we've potted mm-hmm. together. I guess that's what it's calling, right? And I'm going to wait. And see what it's like for other folks. <laughs> you just gonna look out the blinds just to see what they do. <laughs> hey, I've got beer, and I've got enough food to last for a little while. So I think I can wait it out. Now let's be fair and consider the other side. Dell's argument is that when it comes to this uh, vaccine and all the other vaccines, what what are the vaccines that people won't take? Maybe me- measles, mumps, rubella, and you, you remember when vaccines were sort of there was a sure a, it was because a there was a, there was a it. huge cocktail of them that was given to kids all at once, and autism was blamed on right. Them. So on on what what Dell's argument is, we have to more a lot of people have to take it for it to matter, 
and we have to, you know, get that trust going so that people can take this so we can move okay. on beyond COVID, which is fine. I, I understand that, but yeah, when I get into we'll my hotel bag, I think about the Tuskegee experience. I was about to say, you know, I think about all sorts of stuff. So I, I I'm not going to stand in line to get my shot first up, or maybe I will. Maybe he'll convince me otherwise. But you, you, there's doubt. You're not. You're not going to be there's among doubt. the first. You're not going to be in danger of being among the first to have it, Garrett. They're going to give it to frontline workers and emergency workers first. Probably politicians, right? Um, people who are at risk, uh, like other wings of the hospital and nursing homes and care centers and things like yeah. that. This this COVID thing is just really putting a stress on a lot of things. And this is not my way of saying that I'm stressed out with Dell. I'm putting my personal business out here. We are great. We have a lot of spirited um, conversations. But I feel like I might need to bring this one in here because there are a lot of other people that I'm sure are asking themselves the same questions, wondering if this is something that they want to do. If If you are a scientist... Tell me what I need to do, because right now I'm doubtful. I would rather stay at home locked up with the door locked for as long as I need to before, you know, research is done and there's something that the populace can trust rather than running out just for the sake of me going to the bar or going to the restaurant or going to yoga. That's what I feel like is a lot of what's behind this. Sure. That's, that's, what, Garrett, that's I think, where my energy comes from. I think from. it's all a part of healthy concern. Mm. That's all. And Dell just loves me. Of so course he, he does. He so wants he to wants keep you what's safe. best for me. Sure. Okay. So let's hear it. Let's hear it for the boy as we uh, <laughs> move on here. <laughs> So there is actually a little music <laughs> to talk about in the first uh, movement, but just very, very quickly, very quickly. Once again, I learned from listening to, to one of my stories from one of my podcasts last week that Blue Ivy, Blue Ivy Carter, mm-hmm. you know, is out here recording books and we are in competition with her. What we, we have no chance for voiceover work when a royal child is out here making millions of dollars, especially with a book like Hair Love. It would have to be a, <laughs> a very niche sort of project. Yeah. But I'm not saying that it, I'm not saying it's impossible, but maybe improbable. If there, I'm, I'm going to read the headline of this article that I'm looking up. If there is anyone listening who does not know who Blue Ivy, Blue Ivy Carter is, and you listen to this podcast, I'm not doing my job. So my apologies. I apologize to you right now. Okay. This headline says Beyonce and Jay-Z's daughter, Blue Ivy, is narrating the Hair Love audiobook. Okay. And then on this website, uh, you can hear the intro. I'll, uh, I'll put that um, in the description and on the, um, and on the Triloquy website. But uh, for folks who don't know, Hair Love is a book um, by a man named Matthew Cherry, Matthew A. Cherry. And uh, basically what it's supposed to highlight is the fact that uh, young girls, young black girls specifically, don't always have that example, that uh, physical, that, that uh, visual example of their hair being beautiful and their hair being right. represented. And, you know, I think there's also a, a hint of, you know, a dad's guide in here as well, as far as affirming um. those things and affirming those feelings. So, you know, to have Blue Ivy Carter doing that and um, out here as an example, I felt like I had to mention that on, on, on Triloquy because, you know, in addition to being whatever I described the podcast as this week, this is also the Beyonce podcast. She does, <laughs> she, she does seem to be 
An evolution, doesn't she? Uh huh. And then see, and I don't know if you're, you know, have your ear to the ground in this way, but when Blue Ivy was a little girl, the big critique was that Beyonce was not combing her hair, was not putting her hair in plaits or whatever, just letting her natural hair grow. People were like, why don't Beyonce comb her? Not a lot of people, not the fans, not the true fans, but they were like, why don't they, why doesn't Beyonce just comb the, the child's head? And look at her now. She is the spokes girl, the little girl, the spokes girl for hair love globally i mean her voice is out there it speaks to me anytime there's a story that comes across um, my eyes about black hair uh, especially considering the way that i wear my hair the decision that i made over a decade ago you know to let my black beauty really shine not to not to cut it and and put it under whatever uh, it, it grabs my attention and and i know that you could never speak to that in that way but you have an appreciation for natural hair, right? <laughs> I, I do. I've told you a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just, uh, it's nothing that, I don't know, is a big deal. Nothing necessarily music related, but yeah. Shout out to Blue Ivy. Here's Blue Ivy singing the national anthem. <laughs> And why does that make you chuckle, though, when you say you like natural hair? Why do you laugh? Because I shouldn't bring I shouldn't bring up your affinity for natural hair in the same paragraph as Blue Ivy talking about natural hair. Those are two different types of hair love. (laughs) <laughs> that's a different kind of uh, what I what I meant to mention and we're done with it. But what I meant to mention was that in the same way that traditionally there is um, drama behind natural hair in the so-called professional spaces, um, the, the concert hall is that same thing. Uh, back when I was in grad school, I played with an orchestra um, and my, my locks were short enough at that point for me to still do a mohawk. I would get them braided into a mohawk and just have the outside you nice. know, in the middle of my head. And there was a memo that came through one of the orchestras I played with. I won't name them because whatever. The memo said, so this concert, we're going to have X donors and blah, blah, blah. Make sure uh, women long sleeves you know, insert your respectability points here on that list was no distracting hairstyles. Now, who were they talking about other than the one black person in the orchestra and the one that wear a mohawk sometimes? Boy, that is a wide palette. So a distracting hairstyle? So Right, so because they didn't want to be racist. This is distracting, isn't it? (laughs) My dome showing through? So that is why I bring things up like hair love. That's why it's important. For me to bring up here, because there are classical musicians who are having to deal with that part of it. Folks who, you know, would there are probably people that will go home and just shave their head, you know, because they would say, well, I can't have a a career in this thing if I don't. I'm putting Titus's Mm. shout out to Titus Underwood. I'm putting his business out there. He told me that story once upon a time. You know, he used to have locks. He had locks years ago Mm. and and maybe even 10 years ago, if if I'm really thinking back at this point. And, you know, though, that was his reason for cutting them off. So, you know, we, we need Blue Ivy Carter 
to read us this book so that we understand. It's more than just a children's book. It's it's where we talk about equity, and it's and, and it's across the board that there are so many little things that we can be more equitable about, even when it comes to black hair in the concert hall. It shouldn't even have to be a conversation, but it is, so, you know. I agree, and I think that it would also work for non-black kids to hear it so that they're not going up and touch, touch it? touching somebody's braids or something like that. This is not the hair podcast. It certainly <laughs> ended up going that way, didn't it? Uh, I mentioned the concert hall. Um, we are A few weeks back, we talked about Streets is Done in New York. Streets yeah. is Done in Austria, too, you told me. That's right. Yeah. Austria has announced a whole slew of new lockdown restrictions and... Uh, I guess that the uh, the folk opera, the uh, Vienna folk opera, was already shut down. Mm. Um, but yeah, so you're not going to find any live music to be had over there in person, anyway. Uh, I don't even know if that means that if if it's completely locked down. I don't even know if that means that the orchestra is going to be able to stream to get together to stream a concert. Don't know if classical music is done in Vienna. If classical music is done in the capital of Western classical music, we all need to go home and sit down, don't we? I'm, I think it's a strong message. I think, yeah, 100 percent. Mm. Uh, when I think of Vienna, I think of, of course, the Viennese waltz. Do you have a do you have a favorite waltz in the category? Do you have a favorite Strauss waltz or something? Well, there was uh, a polka that I conducted. Uh, as a Ooh, as a polka. guest conductor once, yeah, the thunder and lightning polka. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and I didn't really take into consideration the power you have at the end because I kept like for the for the audience looking at me conducting, I was putting on a like a Leopold Stokowski show for sure. them, right? And I'm and I'm making this big gesture, and they're holding out that last note. And then I turn around and look at them, you know, and some of them are giving me this look like, "Hey, you need to cut us off, <laughs> cut us off, man." So you see the problem I have with conductors. I we do. talk about power structures <laughs> and taking advantage of power. You probably held that fermata for far longer. There's probably an oboe player, bassoon player back there about to die because you felt like you needed the note to be long. You were thinking 100%. about you. Uh, you weren't thinking about the orchestra. That's right. Or probably Strauss neither. <laughs> None of that. Uh, there was yeah. I was also just a little bit embarrassed at the same time. <laughs> you know. So you know, I decided to ham it up. Well, but, well, I'll go ahead. No, in regard to the COVID thing, this loops back around sure. because with with streets being, what's the German word for street? Straße. Streets is done. Die Straßen sich fertig. <laughs> That's the best I could do. Period. Thank you, Google. <laughs> anyway, if so, die Straßen sich fertig in Vienna for for the, for the classical concerts to be done. In the capital of classical music, of Western classical music, that means all orchestras need to take a second look at this, if you want to call it a third wave, the first big wave, third spike, whatever. Really take this thing seriously because people are dying. We talk about the institutions that are not going to make it, but there are 250,000 individuals in the United States that did not make it. So I hope everyone is continuing to take this um, this. Uh, pandemic seriously i know we're getting into the holidays next week is already so-called thanksgiving you know it it seems like it 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 just flew right up so um i this this opus is going in a lot of weird places (laughs) (laughs) so i didn't this is also not the COVID podcast but my words are even in light of keeping the arts alive 
keep yourself alive. We need people to make this music. We need people to play these instruments. And if we can just center that, maybe, 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 maybe we'll make it. Here's a little bit of that uh, thunder and lightning polka. So the last thing I wanted to talk about in this first movement, I wanted to, um, you know, I already gave a shout out to the Gateways Music Festival. I had the honor of um, facilitating a panel which included um, both Titus Underwood and Lady Jess, Jessica Majunkins, uh, members of the Triloquy family, and also um, Ann Hobson Pilot. Now we talked a little bit about this over dinner. You, you're not, uh, you weren't anyway very familiar with Ann Hobson Pilot, right? No. So the first time I came upon her music, I was looking, this was down at WOT. I was looking for something. I forget if it was a harp day or an Africa day or the piece of music that I ended up uh, sharing that featured uh, Miss Ann Hobson Pilot was called Ananga, the William Grant Still. Mm. And um, I just put in the recording and whatever. And a few times through, a few months went by. I actually bothered to look a little bit up about Miss Ann Hobson Pilot. And not only is she a black harpist, but a historic and historic. Black harpist. So uh, she uh, joined the National Philharmonic um, and became that group's first black um, musician. This was back in the year of 1966. And then following that, um, she uh, would join the Boston Symphony Orchestra, where she would spend decades there um, as their only uh, black member for for many years. And when we we t- when we think back into those 60s and 70s, you know, 1966 when she joined the uh, National Symphony Orchestra, we were hot. Yeah. We were it was the heat of the civil rights. You know, the white people were really cutting up thin. So can you imagine the people who saw a black woman on stage for the first time in that concert hall and watched? in D.C. back in 1966, there were probably people that had a problem. Probably there were certainly people that had a problem. But um, she she pressed on. And, you know, we had a really great conversation uh, in conjunction with the Gateways Music Festival. The, the topic of the panel was Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. classical music. So it was really good. It was great to um, get her perspective on the career field as it was for her, as it is now, what she sees coming up in the next generation. So I just want Wanted to make sure um, that I honored uh, Miss Ann Hobson Pilot. I, um, I had the pleasure of giving uh, of presenting her the Trailblazer Award uh, from the Gateways Music cool. Festival. Following um, yeah the panel, it was the first time I presented a, an award, and I looked up the word Trailblazer, and one of the definitions that I saw was making a way through a wild country. Yeah. So I took that idea when I wrote, you know, my address for presenting the speech, you know, a wild country where uh, black folks are getting lynched and there's a segregated South and she is going into the wildest of all of those uh, uh, of those spaces, which is the concert hall, which is classical music and still managed to make it. You know, there mm. is no telling the conversations that happened in the break room, the yeah. people that she had to cuss out on her way to the concert hall. So, um, 
honor. Can you imagine her trying to, her. to transport her instrument? You have to have a, a, a big vehicle. You have to park in certain places. You So th- there's no telling what traffic guards were, were messing with her over the years. So as as much as um and this message is more to you know folks in my generation and even younger you know we like to think that we're blazing the trail and we're shaking up the box and we're doing things and in many ways we are in ways that have not been done but there are many 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 people who came behind us and ann hobson pilot is one of them so um a huge congratulations to her for the trailblazer award from the gateways music festival she's down in uh, florida these days and you know florida has been getting some storms and things so yeah um so uh, yeah. i hope uh, i hope you're down there safe um yeah so uh as we transition here into the second movement, I want to share a bit of uh, that recording that put me on to Miss Ann Hobson Pilot, uh, her take on uh, Inanga by William Grant Still. Here in the second movement, where we are going to share a few pieces of music that struck a chord with us this week, there is a, a slight recapitulation that I want to start this second movement with uh, this week. I uh, was presenting. Who was I talking to? I've been doing a lot of talks. I think maybe this was the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, Dvorak's so-called American Quartet mm-hmm. came up, and I talked about you know the history of it and what it was originally titled, the Ur. It was right. the hard R quartet, <laughs> yeah, and you know all the way up into you know the the publishing of, of vinyl and all that sort of thing, and it was just a shock to so many people in that group. Of that, course, that I decided to throw it back out there on Twitter because I felt like I've told that story at least a couple times here on Triloquy and on social media, but it caught on again there. Um, remind us, remind me, <laughs> what was your initial reaction to finding it out? Because I feel like you heard it from the first time from me while I was on the air on the radio. It was a midnight handoff Mm -hmm. and you started into that. And it was in my head, like (laughs) 10 pin strikes in a bowling alley all at once, every lane hitting a strike at once. It was this big cacophony in my head of going, it's everywhere. So everywhere. So for folks who do not know, um, Dvorak's 12th string quartet was written here in the United States when he was visiting um, on a on an invitation from Jeanette Thurber. I try to say her name as much as I can because she was the woman who brought believed, him over, who brought him over and believed that women and black folks needed to be in these music schools as well. So, I, you know, mm-hmm. say her name as much as I can. Uh, Jeanette Thurber. She invited Dvorak over way over from Bohemia. He comes over here and makes his way over to Iowa, where he hangs out with some other Bohemians. Spillville. And um, along the way, you know, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically he says, in the Negro melodies of America is everything you need for a a strong uh, school of music, a strong tradition of music. So, you know, he really um, had an appreciation for those, uh, what I call the Negro spiritual, you know, he called those Negro melodies. And, um, And he was inspired by them when he wrote that 12 string quartet now. It's called, it's nicknamed the American Quartet these days, but if you go back, it's referred to as the Quartet with the R. Okay, we're going to, we bleeped it here, but with the R. That must have been a word he was hearing. 
Right. right. I mean, it's not like, or maybe that, maybe is, you think that's how they referred to black people over in Czechoslovakia back in his day, back in Bohemia? I can't. Or he, or he came over here that. and heard er. I'm, I'm guessing the latter. So what do you think we should do with that? My opinion is we should just start calling it the Negro Quartet. Or if, if people are, un- are uncomfortable with that word, the Afro-American Quartet. But we, we can't just strip the blackness away from it, despite the fact that, unfortunately, the word that he knew to call us was something that those other Iowans were saying. Right. I could see where that would happen. You, you know, I found a different quote about how Dvorak thought that indigenous song and Negro spirituals were all the building blocks that you needed because he was adamant about don't import this music from Europe. You got, you got all, you have all the ingredients. Your roots need to be plunged into your own soil. Mm -hmm. You know that I was a big Dvorak head for a long time. And so, yeah, I want to believe that that's just what he heard. Mm-hmm. And maybe he didn't get tipped off to what what it actually meant, what the vernacular was. So is Dvorak uh, diminished in your mind? I mean, you haven't canceled him. You don't have the power to cancel him at your job. But but do you feel like he, he's less than now? Not really. Not really. I, and, you know, I, I start paying... It's cyclical how I listen. I'll be heavy into one composer at a time for a while. Right now, I'm on to Sibelius again. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not mad at Dvorak. Uh, I appreciate there being the record, you know, again, talking about records. We're not talking about pictures um, as we were in the introduction. But, you know, just having the record that someone from way over even appreciated what black folk had to offer and not only appreciated it, but considered it the building blocks of what is American music, American classical music. So I'll, I'll continue my reading. Uh, one of the musicologists, one of the DMA students can um, get in my uh, DMs and, and tell me more. But I I haven't canceled the piece. I certainly haven't canceled the composer. I've just canceled the nickname. So you'll con- you'll continue to see it as the American Quartet. Let's just start calling it the Negro Quartet, the Afro-American Quartet, whatever you want to call it. But we have to keep that blackness in it, especially when you look, I, I think about that slow movement, Scott, and the, the melodies in it. I just picture how that could be somebody somewhere, some black person somewhere singing. Definitely go listen to the whole thing, though, Dvorak's 12th String Quartet. If, if, if listening to a string quartet is something that you've never just sat down um, and done and, and you don't want to, um, you know, really get in the weeds of the height and, and, and all that really old stuff, go check out Dvorak's 12th String Quartet. I think it's a, a good piece of music to know. I love it. Yeah. We also have to talk about this um, cat concerto that you showed me because I have some thoughts. So fill in the people. What am I talking about? There was a person that recorded their cat on video uh, just playing keys. 
and it made the rounds on social media. A composer then orchestrated it, and an orchestra performed it with the cat playing piano solo along via video. Now, before I offer my critique, there is not only novelty there, but what if that was your cat? What what if what a shout out uh, uh pour one out for whiskey the cat? Oh, what if, I would what be if, in what bits. If, what if what if whiskey had performed a concerto? You know, p- p- plunk plucked on the piano. You know the way cats just do. Oh, they don't know what they're doing, but there was orchestration around it. Yeah. Okay. Now there are. Ho- what am I about to say? <laughs> I'm just covering my face. There are whole black composers. There are whole humans who are black out here who can't get. We shouldn't be at the concert hall anyway. I guess this video is older. You're, you're just. This is a pre. Ten or fifteen. Video. Yeah, it's ten yeah. or fifteen years. There old. are whole black composers out here, but but we are are uh, premiering cat concertos. That cat has no idea what it was doing at that keyboard. Nope. And here we are. That's why. Or we're maybe upset. it did. That's why we're upset. That's all I'm saying now. It is a pretty cool piece of music with all that being said. There were some moments. Speaking of whole human beings who are out here whose music is not getting played, whose names we don't know, is someone that you put me on to today. Yes, his name is Ozzy Cargyle. He wrote a piece called Creation of the Universe. Mm -hmm. And um, he was also involved in the 2019 Film Music and Design Lab in collaboration with Skywalker Sound. So he's he's done some... Some work here, and he seems to be gravitating toward uh, film music. But you can find him online giving piano lessons and things like that. But That's a, that, that seems like that was uh, one of his big things. Actually, he has this uh, Ozzy Carga has this uh, method book, this piano method book that sort of just teaches anybody how to play the piano, and it's mostly by ear, but there is the reference of the of the music there in the yeah. book. And yeah, I think that's really cool. But I landed there because... Uh, landed there. Uh, I see what you did, fine. Right, so you know that SpaceX Falcon 9, the rocket resilience, blasted off uh, last night, Sunday night. And shout out to Victor Glover, who's the first black astronaut who is... Uh, manning a, a long-term mission at the International Space Station. And in this article that I found, he said, I have amazing colleagues before me that could have done it and some amazing folks who will go behind me. I wish it would, I wish it would have already been done, but I try not to put too much attention to it. That's and that, yes. That reminded me of Titus Underwood. Right. Again, talking about being tired of all these first stories. Why is why is that happening in 2020? Right. Because have black people just gotten the smarts to go into space in 2020? Or is there something else going on? I have to point out that NASA has so far sent 14 black Americans into space out of more than 300 astronauts. 
well, I'm not trying to go to space. So, <laughs> so maybe that's, so, you know, they say black people don't swim. Maybe we don't go to space either. <laughs> I, I, I think Victor Glover just proved you wrong. <laughs> well, shout out to Victor Glover. 27 hour flight to yeah. the, oh man, can you imagine the stretches you'd have to do after that? Yeah, I don't that? like a 12 hour flight. No. <laughs> and that's not even traveling at light speed or, or the speed of sound or whatever. But uh, but I want to get back to Ozzy uh, Cargyle. Mm-hmm. So he has a piece of music. So you were reading about Victor and Ozzy Cargyle has a space themed piece of music. Right. It's called Creation of the Universe. And uh, I, I think that it would be, it might have been a great soundtrack for that flight, for that blast off. We, we listened to it before we started recording, and it's easy to compare everything space-themed to Holst or to, um, or to John Williams. But this definitely had a, a flavor on it that was a little different from me. for me. Uh, it seems like in the space-themed things, it's always the very, what I, what I uh, describe in my mind as an optimistic sound, like mm-hmm. a very bright-sounding mm-hmm. right. orchestration. Yeah. And it definitely has that. But what I love about it is that it has, the way the strings are written and sometimes the woodwinds, all those particles, when we talk about the creation of, it's called the creation of the universe. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the creation of the universe, all those particles that are flying around and, and going about, even if you think about humanity, if you see a picture of of Earth, and I've thought about this, what the what an Earth movement of hosts the planets would sound like. Mm-hmm. I think about the same thing, just little bits and little pieces just kind of scattered uh, everywhere. <laughs> What is it about the piece of music that you enjoy? What what made it what what struck a chord with you with this piece of music? For some reason lately I'm paying an awful lot of attention to the way a composer treats the horn section. I don't mm. know why. I've never been a horn player, but um, Sibelius is really doing it for me, the way that he treated the horn section, Prokofiev as well. And there's just something about the way Ozzy treats his horn section that yeah. really responded to me. It was hopeful and bright, like you said. Um, but there was also some points in there where I felt a little bit of swing, mm-hmm. you know, so there was some... Um, Black a, people aren't going to be in the kitchen without seasoning, <laughs> and it's a, the same for composers. There's a fluidity yeah. that, that I liked about it. I followed Ozzy Cargyle on Twitter today, so I hope to get his attention because I would love to talk more. I had I love learning about new black composers, especially he looks young. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know how old he is or anything, but you know, can, can, very contemporary. The the music is very uh, listenable, and when I say listenable, I mean you don't have to have a a an understanding about twelve tone or serial music mm-hmm. or any of these deep concepts and classical music you can really just listen to it so it it has that 
Um, I love it. The video that you'll see on YouTube was put together with stock footage, but at about eight minutes in, you actually get to see Ozzy. He does a little selfie video in there, yeah, too. Yeah, and you can also check out some of his piano teaching stuff online as well, which I always uh, recommend to people. I'm not a piano player, but I can play the piano, and you never know when it just kind of comes in handy for you. So, yeah, again, huge shout-out to Ozzy Cargill and uh, to his piece of music, Creation of the Universe. Uh, before we get into uh, the third movement to speak with another contemporary black composer, uh, Tyshawn Sore. I wanted to bring up Margaret Bonds. So we all know Margaret Bonds or, you know, th those of us who think about uh, black folks in classical music, very important black woman composer um, at the uh, Gateways uh, Virtual Music Festival uh, last week. Uh, Dr. Tammy Carnodal, who is the president of the um, American Musicological Society, um, I believe, uh, she gave a talk on Margaret Bonds and introduced me to a new piece of hers called Montgomery Variations. So we talk about songs like Mississippi Goddamn and these other protest songs. Well, there was a woman named Fannie Lou Hamer who, who you know, many folks uh, will recognize that name. She was down there, uh, one of many, you know, uh, for a long time, unnamed black women who used their music to really inspire change and get the conversation going back in the 60s during the civil rights era. So you have Fannie Lou Hamer out here singing these spirituals and things. And then you have folks like Margaret Bonds taking the spirit of not only that music and that aesthetic, but the protest behind it and the hope for change and orchestrating it. And there's not a, there aren't a whole bunch of recordings of Margaret Bonds's Montgomery variations. Uh, there's one online. I'll, I'll share a clip of it here with you here in a second uh, featuring the University of Connecticut Orchestra, I believe. But. Like I said, and I was halfway joking about the cat concerto, but for for me, for so many of us to be centered in this work and want to learn more and more and more and more about the orchestral and the instrumental music of the black women and men who came before us, for us to be for 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 us to just be learning about things like this, this whole piece of music with actual connections to history, American history and black people, and we're not really knowing about it and we're not really learning about it. The orchestras aren't playing it. The institutions <clears throat> aren't playing it. We don't have time. We really don't have time to dick around with a cat concerto, as cute as it is, you know, for somebody, for somebody's owner. You know, I mean, do you get what I'm saying there? I 100% get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the whole night was centered around that cat. <laughs> The, the cat concerto just put me in a bat. Maybe that's what kicked off my argument with Dell. I watched that cat concerto and got pissed off. Oh, so it's my fault. <laughs> but um, there, there aren't a whole bunch of recordings out there of the Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds. Um, but I encourage you to go uh, look it up and just put this piece of music on your radar. Um, shout out to Radar. Your, shout out uh, to your, Radar. Your dog, Radar. Um, put, put it on your radar. And um, if you don't know much about Margaret Bonds, you know, read more about her and, and her big influence. One of the things that I took away from Dr. Carnodal's speech on Margaret Bonds is that we talk about Malcolm X. 
we talk about Martin Luther King Jr. We'll go into uh, Nina Simone. We'll talk about Langston Hughes and uh, Baldwin, James Baldwin and all these people. But Margaret Bonds should be among them. She was among them personally. You know, she had a personal relationship with Langston Hughes and much of the music that she wrote. You know, there's there's song cycles by Margaret Bonds based on the uh, words, the poetry of Langston Hughes. So my, my big takeaway was understanding that she um, and other black women musicians and black win, uh, men musicians and composers were as much um, protesters and you know activists as anybody else out on the street. They just haven't always been presented that way. So I appreciated that uh, refreshed look at Margaret Bonds. It kind of makes me feel uh, a little bit more confident in um, affirming myself as an activist in the work that I do these days. Mm. All we're trying to do is um, inspire thought. We're trying to inspire thought and inspire social change. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and Margaret Bonds and countless others uh, did it with their music. And that's what Tyshawn Sori um, hopes to do with his music. So this Friday, November 20th, I think is this Friday already the 20th, um, Opera Philadelphia um, is uh, kicking off off a series of his song cycles, which are called Cycles of My Being. So when we talk about cycles, just like we talked about the pattern, if you remember with um, Alison Loggins Hole and Ensemble Pie a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. you know, she wrote a piece of music called The Pattern. Well, this is a similar idea. Tyshawn Sori talks about the cycles of America and how we'll start to think about race again, and then it'll kind of fall off and we'll, we'll go into the same old thing, how black men and black women wake up day after day with the same fears and the same concerns and the same police brutality, you know, so um, I, I really uh, want to, um, you know, honor uh, Tyshawn, and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation that we have, but I wanted to lead into it with uh, an excerpt from uh, the Montgomery Variations by Margaret Bonds, just as yet another reminder here on Triloquy, that music is activism. Music is not an escape, especially when you talk about the intersection of race and classical music. There's so many things that we can learn about the past and hopefully things that will um, inspire us to do better in the future. So here's a little bit of that Montgomery variations to get me into my conversation with Tashian Sori. For me, you know, art created from a black aesthetic is things that, you know, is necessarily, you know, attached to our cultural heritage and that kind of thing. At the same time, it is also in dialogue with other traditions, therefore making the idea of black art such a thing where we're not necessarily, you know, black composers, for example, are not a monolith. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many things that we are in dialogue with. It can be our own personal life experiences. It could be our interest in world culture. It could be our interests in only black culture. I mean, there's so many avenues you can go, you know, when it comes to the work that we do, you know, from a black aesthetic. And so, um, I mean, and so for me, that's what black art is or whatever. It, it can be something that, you know, comes from us, of course, you know, as, as, as black people, 
But at the same time, I mean, it can also be in dialogue with other, other traditions and not be handcuffed only by, you know, our own historiography. Right, right. So keeping in mind that, you know, black artists don't represent a monolith, not even, you know, the uh, black composer, the so-called black composer. How do you um, sort of think about or or define phrases like composer, like classical music, like jazz when it comes to uh, the, the, the art that you create? For me, it's about self-definition, you know, really defining it yourself and uh, not be handcuffed by what some other person might think of it, you know what I mean? Especially if it's a, a, um, a European or Western art construct, you know, like the word composer, like it almost, you know, sometimes, I mean, like, for example, when I think of composers, you know, I think of somebody as putting things together, you know, I don't necessarily look at it from this Eurocentric value system where, mm-hmm. you know, only people who come from that value system are allowed to engage in the medium. Um, I don't believe in that. And I've never believed that. I was never even taught that, you know what I mean, until I got into it myself. I mean, in an inner city, you know, you're not taught to want to be a composer. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That 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 wasn't a thing that, you know, that's, I'm, I don't, I never knew anybody, you know, among my peers who was taught that, you know, they should go out here and want to be a composer. What we're often taught, however, unfortunately, is to be, you know, the entertainer or something like that, or somebody who, you know, people can see, you know, or like, like a public figure, like a public entertainment figure or something like that. Because according to certain um, groups of people in society, that's the only thing we're good at, you know, is, is about being an entertainer or a person who, you know, deals with sports and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And somebody who is interested in making a lot of money. Um, I didn't, I never subscribed to that. You know what I mean? I just simply did whatever I wanted to do uh, without having to subscribe to the notion of who I should be or what medium I should engage in. I basically did whatever I wanted to do. And I think, you know, by defining what I wanted to do, which was to become a composer and a musician, um, I wanted to do these things, you know, from since I was a very little kid, you know, Um, I've long wanted to engage with music not only in the music that is associated with my culture or the music that I was playing, but I was interested in engaging in all music and mm-hmm. a lot of the different things that I felt, you know, really made me feel good, things that I was interested in. And so it leads back to the whole thing about, you know, how we black artists are not a monolith. You know what I mean? It really goes back to uh, my talking about that. And so um, for me, um, definitely, it's, it, it all comes down to self-definition and really sticking to it, like really sticking sticking to it in a very committed way. Sometimes when we're teenagers, we're often led to a different, you know, sort of a place or whatever with our own work, you know. But um, as long as that determination remains a part of your being, you can really do anything you want, you know, and not um, not have to accept these idealist notions that are put on to you by other people, even sometimes your own people, mm-hmm. even people oh, who yeah. look at who, who look at me, for instance, you know, I had people look at me as a person who, why are you listening to, you know, these old folks music or why are you listening to white people's music? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. For me, it's not even a question of whether or not, you know, I should have the right to engage in it from a humanist point of view. I mean, I should have the right to 
be able to engage with whatever it is I want to engage with and listen to what it is, I, whatever I want to listen to. And um, just as people who have come before me have done, a lot of the people, some of whom you've mentioned, you know, Wayne Shorter, Sarah Vaughn, uh, people like that. I mean, you know, they, they've listened to the work that they've wanted to listen to. And, and you know, Wayne Shorter, for instance, he didn't, you know, come up with his brilliant uh, creative over by only listening to so-called jazz. I mean, right. he's listened to a lot of other different things or whatever that were not necessarily uh, quote unquote black oriented or black based or anything like that. But he still grew as a result of, you know, being open to the world and being open to things, you know, being open to art in the world that surrounded him at that time, you know, and, and continues to do so even now. So, and I'm sure a lot of that, again, is through self-definition, through saying that, you know, what defines me is going to be, you know, whatever the musical or artistic things that I engage with, you know, on a deeper level than just simply listening to it. And that's why he is who he is, you know. So it comes down to really, you know, having an individualistic mindset, you know, with regard to whatever it is you want to pursue in life, you know. Yeah. And uh, that to me is of prime importance rather than some kind of peer pressure or societal pressure, you know, that tells me, you know, that sort of tells me what I have the right to do and not do. Yeah. Yeah. Breaking, breaking that pattern or breaking that cycle, I'll say to uh, get us into the uh, piece of music uh, that you wrote that I want to talk a little bit about today. I don't know if you know um, the composer and the flutist Allison Loggins Hole. Uh, oh, yeah. She, yeah. So uh, I, I talked with her a few weeks ago and she wrote a piece of music called uh, The Pattern. And then, you know, when I think about your composition, Cycles of My Being, I just think about, you know, that over and over and over again, specifically when it comes to this story of police brutality and, and violence on, on black people. Um, were the events of this year, uh, with that in mind, were the events of this year sort of a here we go again, another black person down, or, you know, all of the black people that have been killed this year. What, what was it sort of that, uh, this is the pattern, this is the cycle, or did it hit differently for you? Well, it's hitting in the exact same way that it has hit. In fact, it's even more intense now than it was, you know, I'd say about three years before I started working on it. Hmm. You know, around 2017 was when Larry Brownlee, Terrence Hayes, and myself got together and decided to come up with this song cycle together, even though I didn't begin actual work on it until the beginning of, uh, was it? Yeah, it was like around the end of 2017 when I started working on it. And so for me, the piece is a lot more relevant now. You know, that's not to say that it wasn't relevant then. Right. Um, and it will probably continue to remain relevant for the rest of our days here. Um, and the thing is, is that I think, yeah, it's, it's just more intensity with which that has hit and the idea of cycles, you know what I mean? You really nailed it when you described the work, you know, as, as sort of being representative of the precarity in which we continue to live and the continued police, police brutality and killings and systemic racism and things like that, that we continue to experience on a daily basis, right. you know, um, you know, the music totally reflects that. And I feel that, you know, when this new, um premiere of it comes out you know on the 20th of, of november on friday um when that comes out i think this will be made uh readily apparent to the listener and to the viewer who is going to see who is going to see the film production of uh cycles of my being on the opera philadelphia channel 
Um, and the piece, you know, it's, it's just amazing how much more relevant it is, you know, and um, I think I think the music and the, even the way that it's performed is very different, you know, than in a lot of ways than the Philadelphia performance, uh, the Philadelphia war premiere uh, that we've done. So I think this is going to be a more intense take on the piece uh, when we listen to it. I would imagine, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that this piece of music uh, specifically is getting a little bit more attention now than it was when you initially wrote it. What's your reaction to that? What's your reaction to the to uh, the so-called classical music institutions looking at music like this now, even though it existed far before 2020? Right. It's very important that they, you know, that this is uh, that this is valued, you know, on the same plane as any other piece of music that is on the concert stage. I mean, there's not a lot of concert music out there that really deals with these topics in a very real way. You know, that's not to say anything about myself, but I look forward to, you know, I think it's a good thing that, you know, classical musicians and classical institutions and organizations uh, new music groups and people like that, they're finally starting to kind of see this type of work being shown on the concert stage. What I hope is that this kind of work continues, um, not just by me, but any other Black composer or whatever who, you know, who also is, you know, reading the news and who is also kind of experiencing, you know, who, who also has an interest in using their platform specifically on the concert stage to talk about a lot of these experiences that we continue to uh, to have. I mean, and we see a growth of black composers now who are doing that very same work. Um, Courtney Bryan is somebody who I often mention, who's a dear colleague of mine. Uh, her work deals with these issues in a very real way. And I think people need to look at her work um, too, you know, as, as, as a model for where to go from here on the concert stage. The piece yet unheard that she wrote for Sandra Bland uh, for instance, for, for the murder of Sandra Bland, um, that composition, you know, is among several that she's written that really touch on, you know, the peril that we that we live in, you know, um, in a very deep and meaningful and profound way. And so what I like to see is that kind of trend continuing, you know, on the world stage, you know, in the classical arena, in the new music arena. And, um, and, you know, me, myself, I mean, of course, speaking for myself, I'm going to continue to work in that way, um, even going forward, you know, with Opera Philadelphia and numerous other organizations who wish to engage with my uh, music. So yep. initiating better cycles, more equitable cycles. Exactly. Right. You, uh, you mentioned the uh, tenor uh, Lawrence Brownlee and also Terrence Hayes, the poet who um, was actually the, the lyricist, maybe the librettist, I'll say, uh, behind mm -hmm. Cycles of My Being. How did you uh, get connected with him? And uh, I wonder what it was like um, in the process. Did you write the music alongside his writing of the words or how did that work? Um, it, it sort of worked that way. I think what happened was um, Larry... Um, well, Larry was the first person to contact contact me regarding this song cycle. And when he told me what it was about, of course, I jumped on board uh, because no one else had ever really approached me to work on a song cycle like this. And Terrence Hayes, I think, um, I'm not sure how he, uh, how he was introduced um, to Larry, but maybe somehow Larry knew him or Opera Philadelphia knew him. Not sure how that worked out. But anyway, the three of us got together in New York one summer um, in 2017, like during the summer. And uh, we basically talked about some ideas and, you know, some, um, 
you know, Terrence, I think, recited maybe a couple of things of his that he was working on from what would become the American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, uh, which is a wonderful work, a really great book, and also comes with a CD, I believe, too, of him reciting um, his brilliant sonnets on wow. it. Um, yeah, so anyway, so we, um, so he recited some of those, he was working on them, and um, we were basically, you know, we sat in a room together and talked about a lot of the issues that were happening, you know, during that time. And so later on, you know, as time went on, of course, because of really busy schedules between Larry Terrence and me, I mean, we're all very, very busy people. Um, this correspondence just sort of went by email and occasional phone conversations uh, between the three of us. And finally, Terrence had sent along some drafts or whatever of the sonnets that he did and included a couple of other things. And Larry has also contributed a little bit of texts. Um, I think it was probably maybe October or so because I wasn't going to write anything until I really sat with a lot of the texts, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Really had a lot of time to sit with these texts and decide which of these texts should I draw from. And so, um, so ultimately I ended up choosing the texts to use for cycles of my being. Terrence basically said, you know, just use whatever you want, you know, use any of these texts that you want. You can do whatever you want with them. They don't even have to you know, the sonnets don't even have to be necessarily, you know, in their form as I've written them. Like, you can take from one sonnet and put against, you know, another sonnet and that kind of thing, which is exactly the kind of way I like to work, mm -hmm. you know, with words and things like that, and even with music, you know. So it was very much in line with my way of working out uh, composition. And um, so finally, I finished the piece at the end of 2017, right before... Uh, right before the holidays sort of began and um, emailed it to Larry Brownlee, the final music and everything. And um, and I found that, you know, some of the music was a bit too low. I mean, Larry sort of sent me an email and said, look, you know, can we get on the phone and, you know, talk about some passages that I feel are they're way too low for my voice or whatever. Like there were some things that were written kind of a third too low. Mm -hmm. and he wanted me to bring some stuff a third up, you know what I mean? They, um you know, bring everything a third up so his voice can, you know, sound better and everything. So I did that. I spent maybe a couple of weeks in New York uh, because at that time, that's where I was staying. I was doing a, a couple performance engagements out in New York and I was staying at a hotel there at the time. And I basically worked for hours, hours and hours or whatever in January, finally putting this together in a way that I think makes more sense for Larry's voice than it did. And we premiered it that February, and Terrence came out and recited one of his poetries. Uh, I'm sorry, one of his sonnets um, in Philadelphia, and uh, it was it was fantastic. I mean, it went really well, and it, it was a tremendous impact, you know, that we all had on everybody, you know. And also, the fact that it deals with black male subjectivity too is a thing of mm -hmm. importance here. When you have all black musicians on the stage, you know, playing this really intense, you know, sort of modernist concert music or whatever. You know, that's that's the other thing I wanted to bring up with regard to your last question in terms of the response to the piece. Mm -hmm. um, to see something like that on the classical stage, that's also very rare. You know what I mean? To see, you know, all black male musicians on stage, you know, basically talking about a subject that affects us, you know, in a really big way. Um, you know, that was another big thing for its um, world premiere performance in Philadelphia. And so to have Terrence Hayes there along with us you know, gave us gave us even more impact 
uh, for the song cycle. And we've done the same thing in New York, too. Uh, when Larry and I, you know, we decided to, because originally the Carnegie Hall performance in New York, the New York premiere, um, that was supposed to be just piano and vocal. Mm-hmm. But we made the decision, you know, collaboratively to do the whole thing again, the same way that we did in Philly. And, um, you know, because I think it's important, you know, it's, it's very important to show, um, you know, that we're dealing with subjectivity and we're also dealing with a subject matter that, you know, affects all of us who are on that stage, you know, and, um, you know, the reaction was, you know, the reaction was very similar, although not necessarily as favorable. And I don't know for whatever reasons, I mean, maybe people felt the music was too intense or mm. they may, they may feel that, you know, the, the music, you know, the, like there were a few reviews or whatever that really dismissed the song cycle, you know, saying that um, the saying that Terrence's words or whatever stiffened the music, which I don't, hmm. I didn't feel that way at all. I mean, personally, I mean, so it did, it did garner some negative reactions, but I think, I mean, reaction or not, I think this is something that's important for us to do. And it's something that um, that's really going to challenge, I think, the world of so-called opera and concert music, you know, in a, in a, in a real heavy way. And I'm fortunate to be a part of a, in a compositional or music environment that, you know, that does that, that really challenges the medium in a, in a real way, you know, dealing with these life universe, life slash universal issues mm-hmm. you know, rather than some kind of fantasy. You know. I wonder if it's that subjectivity that um, made those reviewers um, say what they said or think what they thought. I mean, this is music, you know, despite it being, you know, um, a, a collaboration between black men on a subject that um, really, uh, you know, uh, deals with the, sh- uh, the the challenges of black men. One of the big challenges of black men here, you know, those same black men aren't in the audience and they aren't on the airwaves. I mean, how, how do you how do you. And how do you think about that idea when it comes when it comes to this music and presenting these ideas? Well, to me, I'm going to do it regardless of whether you know anybody likes it or not. I mm-hmm. mean, my my work is designed for anybody who likes it, and for anybody who can appreciate it for what it is, not what they expect it to be, or not what it should be, or anything of that sort. I've learned that lesson long ago. Even you know, like even before cycles of my being, when I did the piece uh, Pearl Noir with. Uh, Julia Bullock, um, that right there told me, you know, you should do it, you know, when you're exploring issues that kind of affect you in your life experience, and also, you know, things that affect Black people in their life experience, you know, when you do work like that on a concert stage, people are not going to take it too well, you know, especially people who are on the other side of that and who are privileged to not have to, you know, live a life of precarity every day like this. You know, like in the Josephine Baker song cycle, I mean, a lot of so-called white critics and people in the, you know, white people in the audience in um, Southern California, they took offense to it. You know, a lot of people took offense to it because number one, it was not entertaining music. Number two, because it dealt with these, you know, really poignant um, lyrics that I felt were appropriately backed by the music that I composed for it. Um, Three, you know, it was just it, it, it just it just presented a lot of problems for people in that audience and to the point where both Julie and I had a lot of social media wars with a lot of these critics and people who like had the nerve to basically criticize the work for it not being quote unquote black enough 
or wow. this kind of thing, you know. So that's that's that was the problem that I was facing, you know, and I still continue to face. But it was even more apparent then that you know you should do this work regardless of what anybody of any other culture believes about you or believes what you should be doing, you know. Which is which goes back again to the self definition and to the um, you know to 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 really persevering throughout all of these sort of pressures. Um, that are put on you by mean-spirited critics and insecure composers and performers. Um, so it was it was no different for cycles of my being, where you know they can think what they want to think, mm -hmm. but I'm going to continue to do the art that I think is relevant to our time and and that is important to me. You know, like from you know whether it be just from a musical point of view or from a societal point of view, like all of these things matter to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm going to do it regardless of what they say. I did listen to the uh, a recording of the first movement of Cycles of My Being. I found a performance uh, featuring uh, uh, Larry Brownlee. And, you know, those opening chords um, just remind me of tears. So that, that's the first image I, I got in my mind. Um, you mentioned the black male centricity. That's exactly what I was thinking. Tears, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting exactly. because um, when I think about the black male centricity of it all, and I think about what this past summer looked like here in the Twin Cities where I live and, and across the country, it's mm -hmm. not really tears, but it's fire and anger and, and, and hate. Uh, does those do, do those colors also have a place in this piece of music? Does that come later on? Oh, very much so. Yeah, it very much um, is the case. You know, notwithstanding the fact that you know almost every movement is different too. You know, in terms of its uh, construction, I'm, I'm sorry, in sort of its in terms of its structure, mm. um, and you know the use of harmony and all of these sort of musical things or whatever. Uh, more than that, I mean, even in the titles, like the music that follows is really reflected in those titles, you know, and um, the music that comes out often has this very furious uh, sort of a sound to it and it has an urgency, has a sense of urgency through it for throughout the rest of the piece. Um, you know, the more you listen, I mean, the more it becomes apparent that the idea of cycles, as we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. um, that's going to revisit itself again and again and again and again over and over as it goes along and with greater and greater and greater intensity, the more peace continues on, you know? So at first it may seem like, you know, there's a lot of anguish and there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of fire, um, you know, all of that stuff or whatever that's happening there. But the trajectory sort of switches when you get to the very end of the piece where, you know, we're hoping for better days where you wake up to a new day, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, it, it, it's really, uh, you know, like, this the, the the spirit remains hopeful mm -hmm. you know so it, so it goes from this you know this sort of fiery sort of um this sort of fiery place or whatever to one where you know there's a lot of hope and we wish for greater days um here on earth and so that's that's the trajectory of it and musically it sort of follows in that way too you know when you listen to it yeah. Something else that I was really drawn to that I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was just reading uh, the lyrics were some of the questions throughout. Do you care for me as I care for you? Um, I see um, in myself and among many other people, um, a black people who are sort of falling out of love with what we were taught when it comes to being American and, you know, land of the free. Um 
when so when I read those lyrics, do you care for me as I care for you? It's more of, you know, is my growing truth and disdain for you, you know, the way you feel about me. That's kind of how I, I, I read that. I agree. Um, is, 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 so is it fair to that? That was my question. Is it fair to sort of read into the lyrics listen to the lyrics in that way? Yes, absolutely. And that's also part of the reason why, why the, why the tempo, I should say, or the, uh, or the speed of the music is slowed down because I really want those words to ring out. You know, I really want those words to be carried out. I don't want to rush through any of these lyrics. Like I want the listener to really listen to these lyrics for what they are and really read into them. You know, part of the reason why I do music is to get people to really think. I don't do it to entertain people. I, I, I want people to leave any show of mine or any kind of concert of my music. I want them to leave that hall or that uh, venue really thinking about what they just heard. Um, and so, like, the line you just mentioned, like, that line is sung very slowly, you know, by Larry, because I want people to really hear it. I want people to really hear these lyrics and not just listen to the music, but really listen to everything, how the music and the lyrics both support each other throughout the entire song cycle. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's definitely a fair assessment. I wonder if you consider of uh, the black relationship with the institution of classical music as sort of a microcosm of what we're talking about. A lot of folks are working on building their own, you know, leaving the traditional pathways for ones that uh, center the black mind and the and the black perspective. Do you think it's plausible or even doable to to move toward that future, a place in which uh, works like Cycles of My Being are really presented in front of black audiences instead of predominantly white audiences? That's what I hope for. And in fact, you know, the idea of, you know, us owning our own work and us being able to sort of um, create our own avenues for expression, that's not a new thing. You know, this is something that's happened, you know, already before or whatever. We've seen it in the 1960s because I can, I can go by that. Uh, for example, with groups like the AACM mm -hmm. and the Union of God's Artists, um, God's Musicians and Artists Ascension. We've seen it with groups like that where, you know, these are groups that advocate for self-empowerment through music and through composition and things like that. And we've seen, you know, these musicians present their work, you know, their comp compositions or whatever to black audiences. We've seen that happen you know, like in Chicago and in Los Angeles, and then later on in St. Louis uh, with the Black Artist Group and things like that. Um, we've seen this happen, you know, before with these Black collectivist organizations and people in the Black Arts Movement who are present, you know, their works or whatever to predominantly Black audiences. I don't see any reason why that that can't happen again. Um, I think it should happen again. And I think that, um, you know, I think we need to start taking charge um, and, you know, like I said, you know, supporting each other more than ever. I've said this before, you know what I mean? I think we black composers, you know, we, we need to do more than just complain about what, you know, about the problem that exists, yeah. you know, in these, um, you know, predominantly white institutions. We need to, I mean, we need to not only present our work to these institutions and make them see that this is what's really going on, but we also need to find ways of presenting this to our own audiences and make them understand that, you know, as I said, we're not a monolith and two, that all great black art, you know, comes from black life. You know, yeah. it comes from our experiences and we really need to, you know, put that message out there 
for whoever, you know, whoever, whoever wants to hear it. But I think our own people really need to hear it because uh, it's just it just gives us uh, more breadth, uh, breadth to what we, yeah. uh, you know, to what we're able to contribute to society and to what we're able to experience as a whole, you know, for our own lives. You know, so I think um, I think that this needs to happen again. And I feel that, you know, I think there's a growing community of that um, of this of this happening, which I'm very happy to see. You yeah. know, and I hope to be a part of that world myself. And the AACM, for folks who don't know, is the Chicago based uh, Association, Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. Just want to make sure that I, I say their name right. for folks who uh, might not know. So, you know, and, and we're so um, grateful. I almost hate to say that word, but, you know, we are grateful, you know, to uh, for, for the opportunity to share this art. Um, on platforms like Opera Philadelphia, you know, but what can these predominantly white institutions do beyond offering that platform? What, what, what in your in your opinion, um, from your perspective, what is the even more outward work that organizations like those can do? We need to see more black re- representation in a lot of these institutions. I'll be frank with that. I mean, we we need to see more black faces. Uh, in a lot of these orchestras and and uh, and a lot of these new music ensembles, you know, because it's one thing to say that, you know, yes, Black Lives Matter and this kind of thing or whatever is one thing to post that in some kind of Instagram or Twitter sort of handle, you know, to post that in a photo or something like that. It's one thing to post it. It's another thing to actually be about that. And it's, yeah. another, it's, it's another thing to like really represent that in whatever the institution is or whatever, being an orchestra or new music group, or even as far as admin work, you know, for an opera company, or, you know, even the musicians unions, you know, things like that. I mean, I, I just find it, you know, sometimes it comes a bit, sometimes it comes comes off to me as inge- uh, disingenuous, mm-hmm. you know, because where were these kind of responses, you know, where, where were these responses 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, you right. know, when when black people couldn't even get into orchestras because of the systemic racism that existed then, even then, you know, as it does now, like, you know, we, we, we need more representation in a lot of these groups. And, um, but also, as I said, even more than that, if we can't get the same, or if, if we can't get proper representation of, of us on that stage, then we need to make our own stage and, and just, you know, sort of, do the work, continue to do the work that we live to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the future that I've, I'm hoping for and working toward. Uh, but before we uh, wrap things up, I wanted to um, look ahead a little bit um, to a project that I understand that you're working on now, a piece of music based on the writings of Francis Elizabeth Watkins Harper. Uh, yes. I wonder if you could tell folks um, who she was, first of all, and, and what is the composition that you're working on based on her? Well, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, first of all, was a um, very, very important name uh, for all of us in black culture. Um, not only was she the first uh, black woman to publish short stories, but she was also a very influential abolitionist, suffragist, and a reformer who co-founded the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. And she was born in Baltimore, and she was uh, she was born to freed American parents. And um, one of the works that I especially appreciated of hers that was written during the Reconstruction era was a, was a piece called Save the Boys. And um, and I'm not really gonna go too much more into it than that, sure. but, I'll, but I'll say that she, you know, she's also a very 
very important figure in in uh, Philadelphia. She was also, you know, very very well known here. You know, and um, she's, I mean, she's just done a lot of great work. You know, she like I said, she was a really important abolitionist, and she's devoted all of her efforts efforts to the anti-slavery cause. I mean, and um, you know, she's she's just been so involved, you know, in, in our struggle during the reconstruction uh, period, you know, and um, for example, um, you know, she, she spoke at the National Women's Rights Convention in New York, and there's a famous speech that she did, I think it's called, We Are All Bound Up Together. And it talks about uh, African uh, African American women and their right for suffrage, mm. and you know talked about how black women were facing the double burden of racism and sexism um, all at the same time. So you know she's done a very very uh, she's done a lot of very important work uh, for black people during her time, and I think that the work Save the Boys is very much speaking to again the continued precarity in which. You know, which black men continue to live, or well, black people in general. I mean, let's mm-hmm. face it. Um, you know, um, Save the Boys uh, really sort of centers on that character, and I'm very much honored to present that uh, with Opera Philadelphia. We don't have any exact dates in terms of when that's going to uh, be broadcast, but I do look forward to when when it will become broadcast. I just finished the piece. Uh, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, great! Congratulations. Well, we well we 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 do have dates um, concerning uh, cycles of my being. So um, that begins uh, this Friday, November twentieth. I understand, and 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 goes on um, uh, throughout the winter. Mm-hmm. That's right. Wow. Yeah, well, for, well, they, for cycles, yep. Well, yep. For save the boys, I don't know when that's gonna when that's going to happen, but I look forward to that. Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, leave leave you by asking one more question rooted in um, one of the lyrics from Cycles of My Being. Um, Each morning glow at the window, I have something to praise. And when I read that lyric, you know, I thought about, you know, how rough 2020 is, how rough COVID has been on people. You know, life is hard. Life's a bitch, as Nas and AZ said, right? So even through all of that, I wonder what do you praise when you wake up in the morning what is that thing that makes you say i can get through it you know um the thing that makes me feel that way that you know it's i mean just being grateful for what i already have in spite of everything you know crumbling around me you know i'm just grateful to even be alive and to wake up and to be able to you know do the work that i love to do and to contribute something you know um that's you know i i feel like that that's what keeps me alive is the fact that i'm able to do the work that i do and you know the inspiration that i get from seeing people like me you know who are continuing to make work um you know continue continue to see people who look like me you know really doing this really important work i think for a society on the world stage not only in the classical world but also you know in in even the so-called vernacular music world Hmm. uh seeing a lot of the important work that they're doing there you know just just being able to see that 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 gives me a lot to look forward to you know to see that there are people who are continuing to doing this kind of work um that's something to definitely praise for sure you know at least at least for me
Thank you, thank you, thank you to Tyshawn Sori and his team for reaching out to me and um, making sure that we could get that conversation recorded. I actually met Tyshawn before uh, in a pre-concert talk with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra in the before for a time. And, you know, he's just... He, he represents what I love about what the future of so-called classical music could be. Mm. Perspective that's real, perspective that's raw, perspective that's unapologetic, and perspective that does not bend over to what, you know, the predominantly white audience might think about it. Just really um, authentic. So thank you to um, Ty Sean. So uh, let's go ahead and wrap things up here with our triloquy. You are so dumb. You are really dumb, for real. Shout out to Antoine Dotson. Those words are for someone, uh, some people uh, coming up. But before we get into that, how about you give us all a radar update? Yes, thanks to everyone who did whatever chanting, prayer, sending good vibes, level vibes, whatever. Thank you. It's working. Keep on doing it. Um, I got some test results back that... He does have a tumor on the liver, but it appears to be benign. Mm -hmm. So that just means that if it needs to be pulled out, they can go in, cut it out. He's not going to have to have chemo or radiation or whatever, and he can go on and live for several more years. So uh, that is, uh, I spent the weekend feeling like absolute shit. You know, the realization of, oh, my God, what is the lake going to feel like without him? Mm. And then I thought, well, wait, this is going to be a total shift of your entire calendar without him. What's really going to suck is the first day waking up and he's not there. That's going to be the drag. But it's a benign tumor. Thank you for all the everybody who uh, sent some good vibes. Um, I feel much better about things today. I don't like thinking about it. I don't like thinking about radar not being, and obviously you don't, but I also don't like thinking about it because for the first time in my life, I feel like I really understand the idea of man's best friend <laughs> because yeah. is that not what radar is? I mean, for goodness sake, at least when it comes to, you know, to you. He's my shadow. He's my familiar, my soulmate. Well, I, and that's great news. That is such great. I, I definitely did some chanting. I even um, ate a dog biscuit for Radar, just for good luck. I'm kidding. <laughs> you but, did not. <laughs> but that sounds like something that you could do, right? <laughs> I'm not going to chew on one of those bully sticks. You must have been hungry. <laughs> um, no. So I was in my feelings... Yeah, I, I was I was getting teary eyed yesterday. Uh, today is Monday, so yesterday on Sunday, uh, thinking about what if Radar goes on to dog heaven, and you know I'm not here. Dell and I are not here to sort of be here for you. And those feelings came up for me particularly because. I have a job interview of yeah. all things that's going on in my life right now. Um, I'm not going to say much else now. I'll, I'll if well, depending on how the job. Either way, I'll, I'll talk more about it. But um, so what I'm asking for this week, my true and real, my triloquy is asking folks to send me all of your positive juju so that I have as clear of a mind as possible. You know, thanks to um, the 
you know, individual supporters, as well as the institutional supporters, you know, the businesses that, you know, buy spots on Triloquy, buy spots on Triloquy.org, mm. all of the, you know, I, I'm in front of Zoom every single day talking to, you know, this uh, group of college kids or or consultant for this institution. So I have been so blessed. I will use that word. I have been blessed to be able to maintain uh, myself uh, financially um, in this new profession of mine. But an opportunity has come before me that I feel like I have to at least consider when we talk about really centering blackness and aligning myself with institutions that will center blackness. I've been given the opportunity to at least interview for um, a a position of, I won't say a position of power, but a position of influence, a management position at one of these institutions that from the outside looks like it's ready to really center what I want to center. And if that can be my way of extending my work and my beliefs and what I believe can be our future in the arts even further, so be it. So Mm. I'm taking the interview. If the job ends up happening, um, I'm going to have to move from Minnesota. Obviously, we have means of, you know, recording all of this virtually. But what it really means is that the city that I might be moving to that, uh, that I'm thinking about right now, you just have to start looking for jobs there. That's all. <laughs> I was about to tell everybody down there to look out. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming in hot. I mean, what if you could get you? You joke about a job at the parks department. What if you can get a a parks department job in? Because <laughs> I don't want to mm. say yet, <laughs> and kind of live that life. Mm. Cost of living is much cheaper here. Here in the Twin Cities, I've done a little research. Here in the Twin Cities, we're fifteen percent above the national average. There is eight percent below the national average. So hey, yeah. So let's trade down. <laughs> Oh, stop. I'll just stop. <laughs> so I just wanted to name that. So as things happen, we'll see. Again, like I said, I'm not naming anything because we'll see how this job interview goes. I think it's much of an interview for them, for me to them, as them to me as well. So I'm very thankful to go into this situation understanding that there's no desperation. It's not about me making a living for myself. It's about me making impact. It's mm. about me really wanting to change the world, at least the world of classical music. So that's that. Wanted to be true and real there with y'all. Um, in closing here, again, let's hear from Antoine Dawson one more time. You are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. A lot of y'all was out there in Washington, D.C., really protesting the vote. Now, I can say... One thing about Biden, you know, he wasn't my first choice or whatever, but the people have spoken. 70 million, 70 million of y'all spoke, tried to make a little hashtag on Twitter about the Million MAGA March. And what did the kids do? We made it all about pancakes. So as I watched y'all spread and COVID on TV, Dell and I ate pancakes and they were so delicious. See you next week. (laughs) 